God breathed into Adam the breath of life, and he became a living being. This week in Louisville, Kentucky, God will be breathing into our minds and hearts and souls his breath of knowledge and inspiration and insight. And it's pretty exciting to be here to be together, to see what God's going to do, to see how he pulls all of us together, how he equips people for his worldwide work. Meanwhile, scattered around the globe, are millions of children struggling to breathe at all, even their physical breath. So we're going to talk a bit this afternoon about pneumonia, focusing on kids. In the course of the next 50 minutes or so, um, we'll talk, we'll interact, we can do whatever you all want to do, and we'll talk a bit about how we can learn to differentiate viral from bacterial lower respiratory infection so we can appropriately diagnose children so that we can appropriately manage them. Does that sound like an okay plan to everybody? It's so fun. I know some of you, but many of you I don't. So I'm looking forward to getting to know you. But I feel like I'm walking through a legendary something or other. It's like the Hall of Fame of missions and faith and everything here. So it's fun to be together. Hopefully we can have some fun today. So we'll focus on the millions of children summarized by the child mentioned on the slide. A 10-month-old child presents with... How many of you are pediatricians? Oh, our hearts are warm together, the four of us. Uh, how many of you are physicians taking care of children sometimes? And how, that's a lot of you. And how many of you are, I don't, is that a good thing? He's an intern, he can take care of children, Sam's good at that. Uh, and how many of you are in the nursing side of things? You're the ones that are really making a difference in the world. And how many of you are in training? And how many of you are currently working overseas? Whatever overseas means. And how many of you expect to be working in a non-U.S. country? This is so exciting. Good. So we're coming from a bunch of different perspectives, professionally, personally, and geographically. So hopefully we can share together a bit. But to consider, what do we do? A 10-month-old child presents with two days of fever and cough. What do we need to do to make a diagnosis? And secondly, what would be appropriate treatment? That's the topic. We'll try to answer those questions over the next 45 or so minutes. Realizing that pneumonia matters in the world. Every November, there is a World Pneumonia Day. Now, this sounds a little bit morbid, perhaps, but if we can think about pneumonia at least once a year, we might actually be able to save children physically from a physical death. And if we think about pneumonia every day, we can help them every day. And if we spend a little time thinking about pneumonia now, even though it's not quite November 12th World Pneumonia Day, um, perhaps we'll be ready when the children come to us. Because pneumonia is a big problem. 1.2 million children die each year because of pneumonia. Many of these cases are vaccine-preventable and unnecessary deaths. And only about a third of the children who die with pneumonia have received antibiotics before dying. Even in the current era where antibiotics have been around for decades, a third of children that get pneumonia and die got them, meaning two-thirds of children died with pneumonia without getting potentially life-saving antibiotics. So we should take action. Realizing that there are more than a million children dying every year, we should act. Pneumonia accounts for about 18% of the preschool deaths in the world every year. 
About half of those deaths are children with pneumonia who are also malnourished, so they're multifactorially ill with many things going on. But this accounts for about 3,200 deaths every day. Nobody stopped you walking into this building this afternoon and said, have you been around someone coughing lately? We don't quite have the fear factor for pneumonia going on, but every two days as many people die of pneumonia as have died of Ebola this whole year. Pneumonia is a big problem statistically, 3,200 childhood deaths every day from pneumonia. We should take action, but you know that. That's why we're here to talk about pneumonia. Realizing that many cases of pneumonia are preventable, we should think about vaccines and prevention. And realizing that many children dying of pneumonia die because of inadequate care, we should be ready to appropriately diagnose and treat pneumonia. In the darkness on these slides, um, you can see three children sharing a bed. I took this picture in Mongolia. There happened to be a lot of kids with lower respiratory tract infection, and each of their intensive care unit beds had three children in it. Lots of kids are sick with pneumonia. This is a big deal. We need to know how to be able to take care of them. So quiz question for you to answer. A 10-month-old is febrile and coughing, short-term, a couple days illness, acute infection kind of thing. A 10-month-old is febrile and coughing. What equipment, what technology would be useful in making a diagnosis so we know how to treat them? Option number one will be a blood count machine. Option number two will be an x-ray machine. Option number three will be a stethoscope. And option number four is you want to say something other than the three options I gave you. All right, you got the idea? This is the audience response system, otherwise known as the arm-raising system. Um, so how many of you say the most useful technological equipment to diagnose pneumonia is a blood count machine? No takers. How many of you say it's an x-ray machine? Well, now, this is good. We all look around, see what everybody, now we, this is good. This is, you're like, okay. And how many of you say a stethoscope? And how many of you are with me saying none of the above? Ah, Dan Tolan, why none of the above? The best way to diagnose pneumonia is using the Tolan score. I just made that up. Um, the respiratory rate, count the respiratory rate. Here's a picture of a nurse holding his watch, watching the child, and counting the respiratory rate. Research studies show that the most discriminating factor to decide if a child has bacterial, a, a coughing febrile child has bacterial pneumonia and needs antibiotics or has viral disease and doesn't need antibiotics, the most discriminating factor is the respiratory rate. How much tachypnea is there? So here on this slide is everything you need to know, almost, to take care of pneumonia in children. Diagnosis is based on tachypnea. Tachypnea is the way to diagnose whether it's bacterial disease, bacterial lower respiratory tract infection, versus viral disease not needing antibiotics in a coughing febrile child. For a child between 2 and 12 months of age, 50 breaths per minute is the cutoff. For a child between 12 and 60 months, 1 in 5 years, 40 breaths per minute would be the cutoff. So if the child with acute cough and fever is tachypnic, the child will get an antibiotic as part of the treatment. 
If the child with acute cough and fever is tachypnic and really sick, meaning kind of out of it, not able to take fluids orally, then the child would get an antibiotic and inpatient care and hospitalized care. Okay, all but four of us chose A, B, actually chose B or C on my choices. Is everybody convinced just because I said it emphatically that this is true and I could put references down there and say it and I quoted somebody from CMDA's office like it must really be true? Uh, we got this? Tachypne is the way to decide. We believe it? Science for 20 years says this is the right answer. This is how we decide if it's bacterial pneumonia. But if it were that easy, we'd be done for the afternoon. Unfortunately, life is complicated. And it's not always as crystal clear and easy. So we're going to talk a bit about this tachypnea business and how best to diagnose pneumonia. And we're going to talk about how it's not really true and we're going to come back at the end and we're going to say, but this is still the right answer anyway. Um, so we'll get back there. So as background, what are the causes of fever and tachypnea? We already said bacterial lower respiratory tract infection, pneumonia. Viral respiratory tract infection can cause fever and tachypnea, but what else? We're more than just an algorithm. We want to make sure we're not missing anything. What else causes fever and tachypnea? Malaria. malaria. And that's important because a child with malaria who's tachypnic has a worse prognosis. Tachypnea with malaria is a risk factor for dying of malaria. So malaria can cause tachypnea and fever. Why tachypnea with malaria? Physiologically? Anemia. All right, so it can be because of anemia. Any other reasons why malaria can cause tachypnea? Probably a metabolic acidosis or something when the infection's overwhelming. So the acidosis, the anemia, um, bad factors giving poor prognosis. So think malaria with fever and tachypnea. What else causes fever and tachypnea? Very good. Bacterial, serious bacterial infection running through the body. Any bad disease could do it. Hmm? Typhoid fever. So any serious bacterial infection can. So we like this idea of acute fever and cough, count the respiratory rate, decide if you need antibiotics or not. But we need to think a little bit more broadly of other things. And at the same time, we need to remember sometimes people have two problems at the same time. Maybe they have a fever from an infection, but they have diabetes with acidosis from their diabetes. Maybe they're dehydrated from whatever else causing their acidosis, and they have a fever from whatever caused their diarrhea or their dehydration. And if a child is sick and comes to see a physician or a nurse, that's exciting. And excitement, anxiety can cause tachypnea. So we have to be thinking but even realizing that with anxiety and acidosis, that 40-50 number, depending on age, is still fairly reliable for do we need antibiotics or not. So we need to think broadly, even though we're trying to simplify a little bit. So what about this diagnosis of pneumonia? What about this using the respiratory rate to decide if that really is the basis for deciding to give antibiotics? I like simplicity. I'm a pediatrician. So I like to be able to say, just count the respiratory rate and decide if you're giving antibiotics. But then people go and start writing research articles titled things like lack of predictive value of tachypnea in the diagnosis of pneumonia in children. Kind of shoots down my theories. Um, this study from Boston looked at 1,600 preschool-aged children, 
20% of the tachypneic ones, so they only included kids that had maybe pneumonia in an emergency department, 20% of the tachypneic ones had x-ray evidence of pneumonia. And 12% of the ones that didn't have tachypnea but thought maybe had pneumonia, like fever and cough, 12% of them that were not tachypneic had x-ray evidence of pneumonia. So they said the respiratory rate is not very discriminating, but it's a little bit predictive. They didn't leave it at that. This Boston group keeps harping on this idea, and they write another about prediction of pneumonia in a pediatric emergency department, this one looking at all age kids up to age 21. The first 1,600 kids study was in preschoolers. This is all pediatric patients. They looked at different factors to say what predicts whether there is bacterial-looking pneumonia on X-ray. And if the oxygen saturation was low, 37% of those had radiographic evidence of pneumonia. If there was no wheezing, half of them had pneumonia. So if they're hypoxic and not wheezing, then half of those had pneumonia. If they had rowels focally in one spot with their no wheezing and their hypoxia, 70% of them had pneumonia. And in this study, tachypnea and retractions were not linked statistically to an X-ray diagnosis of pneumonia. Yes. I have lots of questions about this. I'm with you. Go ahead. Well, do you think the population of children in Boston is similar to the population of the areas that you treat? So one of the key principles of evidence-based medicine is, is the population in the study relevant to the patient I'm seeing? So his question, for the microphone that's recording this for later, if you didn't hear him, um, his question was, do you think the population in this emergency department in Boston is representative of or similar to the children I'm seeing? That's a good question because Boston is different than other places. The ages are different. And entry into this study was some healthcare provider thinks it's maybe pneumonia. So what patients are we really talking about? Very good question. And I'll leave it as a question and say there is a question. We have to be careful how to interpret it. Yes. Uh, so I'd have to look at the study. You have your phone on, it looks like. Oh, no, you can turn it on. I was going to say, look up this study in pediatrics in 2011. Um, if you're on the phone, um, if you do this Internet smartphone stuff, I haven't figured out yet. Uh, but if you can see, um, they used in their preschool studies, they used the WHO numbers, 50 in the first year, 40 between age 1 and 5. I don't remember what they used for the 5 to 21-year-olds in the study. So you can tell us in a minute. If you, can you, is that a smartphone? Uh, we're buds. <laughs> it's like the stethoscope. Do you know what the most important part of the stethoscope is? The part between the ears. I'm not sure he's a dumb user because he asked a smart question. All right, let's keep going. Boston, again, emergency department. In 2000, with 2,000 kids, they looked at tachypnea versus radiographic pneumonia at different years in a different study. They looked at sensitivities and specificities suggesting that the sensitivity, the ability to detect pneumonia, was not very good with tachypnea. But if they had tachypnea, it was fairly specific. When they do the positive predictive value statistics, it wasn't very good, tachypnea by itself in predicting pneumonia. So maybe we should say tachypnea doesn't matter very much. Don't take that as the final thing you hear before you fall asleep or leave. Uh, but these three different studies from Boston realizing there are definitions of tachypnea and patient population variations. 
These three would cast doubt on the WHO, World Health Organization, idea that tachypnea is the key answer. So let's go back to the 1990s to Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, and let's give a whole stack of x-rays to four different pediatric radiologists and say, pediatric radiologist A, B, C, and D, is this pneumonia or not on x-ray? The three Boston studies we just looked at had a gold standard. The final answer was, does the x-ray show pneumonia? So now we're back asking pediatric radiologist, does this x-ray show pneumonia or not? Tricky in this study, they used a lot of different kids' x-rays, and they put duplicate x-rays in to see if the radiologist would say the same answer when he saw the same x-ray multiple times. All right, so there was about a 70 to 90%, depending on what they're looking at, agreement of the same pediatric radiologist with him or herself. So the question of consolidation, what most would call pneumonia, was about 90%. If the pediatric radiologist looks at the same x-ray twice, 90% of the time he'll say the same thing about it. 10% error rate between himself or herself, that's not so good. And looking between pediatric radiologists, it was only up to about 79% agreement with whether it was consolidation, pneumonia or not. So maybe x-rays aren't that perfect, because just as he said when he said it's not a dumb phone but a dumb user, we don't believe he's dumb, he's going to figure this out. He's working on that article for us. Thanks. Oh, no signal, dead battery. Smart user, bad technology. All right. Uh, I did find... This is true. So now we've got experts that are supposed to know that are only 70 to 90 percent in agreement with themselves or others, which is different than all of us looking at x-rays of different technological quality in different sorts of settings. So maybe x-rays aren't that specific or useful. They're not bad. They help. But maybe they shouldn't be the gold standard. So somebody that is systemic, or sorry, systematic review about the diagnosis of bacterial pneumonia in children, and they titled their paper "When Gold Is Bronze." Maybe using X-ray as the gold standard isn't so good because maybe X-ray doesn't really say. So if that's just the third level bronze standard, how do we really say if it's pneumonia or not? That's tougher. That's tougher to say unless we do biopsies and look in the lungs for bacteria, but you have to get it to the right place, and it's rather invasive, and most of us don't want to stick needles in chest to decide if it's pneumonia or not. So maybe x-ray isn't the most definitive answer, so maybe those Boston studies don't have to make us throw out the WHO criteria completely. But what else might we do? Is there something that's even better than x-ray and more useful for the family doc working in Africa? So people have the idea of doing ultrasounds. What about using an ultrasound to look at the lungs to see if there is pneumonia? So realizing there are several studies about this, I asked one of our pediatric radiologists at the Mayo Clinic, and I said, what do you think about using ultrasounds for diagnosing pneumonia? And they said, no, ultrasounds don't work when there's air there because you can't see through air. I said, okay. Uh, but despite what that good Mayo Clinic pediatric radiologist said, on this picture, you can see there's a pretty clear pneumonia on ultrasound. 
At least it says that on the labels with the arrows that somebody put there. So people have done a few studies. This is a study from an emergency department in New York looking at 20 kids during an influenza epidemic a few years ago. And there was some reliability, about an 80%, this Kappa score, about an 80% agreement with the ultrasound machine and whether it was really pneumonia or not with the best gold standard we could come up with. But this study was actually looking at individual observers with the ultrasound machine. Did they agree with themselves and did they agree with somebody else? Is it pneumonia? Suggesting in 20 patients that at least there's some validity and reproducibility in ultrasound. And then they looked at 1 to 18-year-olds in a New York emergency department. They used x-ray as the definitive answer, questionable as that might be, and using comparing ultrasound to x-ray, using x-ray as a definitive standard, there was about an 85 to 90% agreement with ultrasound and x-ray. Now, this gets me excited since I've worked in places where we don't have x-ray machines as reliably, when we think about radiation risk in children, and when we think how readily available ultrasound machines are, maybe we should think about using ultrasound machines for pneumonia, because maybe it's almost as good as the x-ray. So I just point out these two headline articles from different pediatric journals. The European journal says, Lung ultrasound for pediatric pneumonia diagnosis. Internationally officialized in near future? So the Scandinavians were asking, this is two years ago, this paper, is it about time to think about using ultrasound? The Americans were much more quick to jump on this and said, prime time for routine use, let's go for it. And then it was after that the male pediatric radiologist said, huh, I haven't heard about that. Uh, so there's literature to support the idea of thinking about ultrasounds, but there's not a lot of acceptance of this yet. And then just this month, or just last month in October, a paper came out from Taiwan where they looked at 163 kids a couple of years ago, and they found very good agreement, very good sensitivity and specificity between the ultrasound and the x-rays. So I leave this out there for us. It hasn't caught on anywhere in the world I know of, but over the last four years, there, there are emerging data to suggest that ultrasound with even a little experience might be a semi-reliable way to diagnose pneumonia. Semi-reliable meaning probably in the range of how good x-rays are. So ultrasound might be coming as something to do. The paper from Taiwan last month says it's a complementary tool that maybe could be used with everything else. So pneumonia is hard to diagnose. I'm still stuck with a respiratory rate uh, because I think that's as good as anything else. It's going to be discriminating for what we need. But we'll keep thinking about auscultation. We'll keep thinking, especially to rule out wheezing at the same time. We'll keep thinking about x-rays if we can, even though we know they're not perfect. And maybe ultrasound will become more useful. Is anybody using ultrasound to diagnose pneumonia where you're living and working? And where are you working? In Togo. In Togo. And you're using it instead of x-rays? We do it here because they're Wow. Is that a developing country? That's in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, so you're using it as a routine? This is the place where it's happening. 
Lives are changed in Louisville, Kentucky. They're leading the way for adoption in America, it sounds like, of ultrasound to diagnose pneumonia, and our lives are all going to be changed this week too. Okay, so what causes pneumonia? However we diagnose it, we need to know what the germs are so we can give good treatment. This is a detailed thing. You can get slides from me if you want. It's a paper from a couple of years ago in Pediatric Infectious Disease Journal, basically saying the germs that cause pneumonia vary with the age of the child. In the first couple months of age, this table says birth to one month, we're thinking about the newborn germs, group B streptococcus and the gram-negatives like E. coli in the United States, other gram-negatives in other countries. After the first month or two of age, then it's more pneumococcus and maybe staph depending on the setting until we get into the school age years and then it becomes more atypical pneumonia germs like mycoplasma. If we know the germs that cause pneumonia, we can pick the antibiotics. Looking at this table of germs, even if you could read the fine print, we would say first couple months of life, we're going to think about parenteral coverage because newborns are sick. We're going to think about ampicillin and genomycin to cover the group B strep and the gram-negative enteric rods. After that first couple months, we're going to think about something that covers the gram positives like pneumococcus, maybe a little staph coverage. And we might even throw in atypical coverage, except people don't die of mycoplasma and the atypicals very much. So we'll probably focus on the life-saving treatment and just go with the treatment for normal pneumococcus kinds of things. What about viruses? Viruses cause lower respiratory tract infection. Viruses can make kids sick. But again, we have to be very careful about how we diagnose things. A great study came out in the journal called Pediatrics earlier this year where they did PCR, polymerase chain reaction, high-tech diagnosis of viruses in children with respiratory disease. <coughs> they wisely compared their findings to viruses in samples from healthy children. If they found RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, or metanumavirus, or parainfluenza, then it was probably related to the disease. But there was no real difference in the frequency of finding coronavirus and enterovirus, whether the child was sick or not. Reminding us that wherever we are in the world, even if we have access to germ diagnosis, finding a germ does not mean the germ is related to the disease that the child has or to the symptoms the child has. So whatever diagnostic tests we can do, we have to interpret carefully before we blame everything on viruses or bacteria that lots of people have. Lots of us, probably 12 or 15% of us, have group A strep in our throats right now. It doesn't mean we're sick. It doesn't mean we're contagious. And if we get pneumonia, it doesn't mean that germ in our throat was causing it. So we have to be a little bit careful. Uh, but new diagnostic tests might help us if we interpret them appropriately. So practically, slide number one to really know about was our tachypnea slide. Two to 12 months of age, respiratory rate more than 50. Think about antibiotics. 12 to 60 months of age, respiratory rate more than 40 with cough and fever acutely. Think about antibiotics. Which antibiotics? We've already said some of this. If the child's less than two months of age, hospitalized, think about ampicillin and genomycin. If the child's more than two months of age and not very sick, amoxicillin should work fine. In the United States, we usually say 10 days of amoxicillin. 
Good studies and good data would say we're fine with a shorter course, and some specify, depending on how much HIV there is in the area, if there's a lot of HIV around, we should probably go with five days of amoxicillin for the outpatient of treatment of pneumonia. If there's less chance the child is HIV positive, three days of oral amoxicillin uh, for pneumonia. If the child is sicker, so this is a two-month or older child who not only has tachypnea but is sicker, meaning not drinking well, retracting a lot, not staying awake very much, then that child should probably get parenteral treatment with a penicillin, either ampicillin or benzyl penicillin, in addition to something to cover other germs like using genomycin. This gets back to what I think you said earlier, Sick kids with pneumonia might actually have bacteremia and sicker disease, so we have to make sure we've got pretty strong coverage for these acutely sick kids. Those of us that spend time working in other countries where malnutrition is common, and those of us who realize that nearly half of all pneumonia deaths happen in malnourished kids, we know that a child with severe acute malnutrition has about a 15% chance of being bacteremic at presentation, even if they don't have much cough. So ampicillin or penicillin with genomycin for five days for the severely sick child with pneumonia. If we don't have ampicillin and genomycin, or if we have more money or more access to other medicines, we could use ceftriaxone parenterally for about five days. Is that clear enough? These are WHO kind of guidelines based on some articles and references based on the things. Angela. So Angela asked the good question, would Ampingent really cover Staph aureus? With all the confidence and knowledge I have, I say, maybe. <laughs> uh, would, would Ampingent cover Staph? Ampicillin covers some Staph. Genomycin covers a fair bit of Staph. But if you have lots of mescillin-resistant Staph, no. Um, so that's the risk. The WHO treatment guidelines come realizing that the incidence of mescillin-resistant staff in developing or resource-limited countries is actually not very high. So this is still the real recommendation. Um, but if you have a lot of mescillin-resistant staff, then you might do something else. Or you might start this way and then switch if the child's not getting better. Similarly, pneumococcus can be penicillin-tolerant or amoxicillin tolerant, not usually resistant, but either needing bigger doses or maybe not responding well. Um, so I'm going to not answer your I'll say, yes, this is the recommendation, even though there's validity there. But we have to realize that sometimes pneumonia gets complicated. So if the child's not getting better very quickly, then we might need to look for an effusion or a pulmonary abscess or something else, and then we're going to have different sorts of treatment for longer time. Is that a fair enough punt of not quite answering? Mesillin-resistant staph and pneumococcus resistance, those happen, but it's a minority in most parts of the world. Yeah. Um, so I, I put those as per dose. Sorry, um, so yeah, the fine print, I put 40 per kilo per dose, 80 per kilo per day of amoxicillin. 
So what we used to call the high dose amoxicillin, yeah. Twice a day for amoxicillin should be okay. If we do some of the things I'm saying here in the United States, people might think we're not practicing very good medicine, but this is based on good data of what works in resource-limited places. So some of it's feasibility, but it's also effective. We're talking three to five days of treatment for pneumonia. We're talking twice a day amoxicillin. Yes, it works. So as of 2013, are most of you familiar with a blue booklet, free downloadable online, inpatient care of children from the WHO? In the new edition, did it update? 2013 says the high dose, 80 per kilo per day of amoxicillin, yeah. Um, if you don't know that book and you take care of sick kids, great resource, free at WHO. What's it called? What's it say here? The Hospital Care for Children. Thank you. I put it on the screen even. Um, free download in English or French. Great resource to have for any inpatient care of sick kids. Thank you for the good comments. Complicated pneumonia means there's an effusion. They're not getting better. Um, it's the staff that's more likely to cause effusions, even though pneumococcus can. So we're probably going to go with antibiotics. It'll probably be for longer with more parenteral. If you're on an x-ray, you see more than a centimeter of fluid, whiteness, um, where there should have been lung showing. Then you'll think about tapping it for drainage. Um, if the drainage persists and reaccumulates after that initial diagnostic tap, then you'll think about leaving a chest tube in. And depending on your resources, you might squirt in something else to irritate the lungs to help scar it down in the pleural space. And you might think about video-assisted video thoracoscopic surgery, VATS, to try to clean it out. Yes? In, uh, in reference to the ultrasound, that's very useful at tapping. Yes. Those that have ultrasound, you can see where you're going. Less likely to hit the liver from where you are when you're just looking at what's white on the x-ray. Um, ultrasound's also very useful to see if the fluid's loculated by seeing if it moves when the child moves. Um, so ultrasound's very useful to help looking at effusions. That's well accepted, yes. All right, so we're getting an idea of how to deal with pneumonia. Let's not forget the supportive care. It's not all just about germs. As Hippocrates says, it matters less what disease the patient has and more what patient has the disease. Let's not lose the sight of the patient in all the germs and all the treatments. We need to support the patient through this. Oxygen matters. Interestingly, there was a study out of Tanzania earlier this year that showed that patients, did, families of children, did not like their children to get oxygen. They knew that the children sick enough to get oxygen often died and interpret that to say if they get oxygen, they'll probably die. And so they were resisting helpful oxygen. We have to figure out what's going on in our community so we can make sure we're giving care that's appropriate in acceptable ways. Oxygen is useful if a child's hypoxic enough. It's reasonable to use 90% saturation at a sea level equivalent um, to decide if we're going to give oxygen. Even though 91, 92 is lower than normal, it's reasonable to use 90 as the cutoff, especially if you have limited oxygen. Fluids and nutrition are vitally important by whatever route is most useful, hopefully going enterally, but however you need to get it. And analgesics might help kids feel better, 
and with real high fevers, it will help the child lose less insensible fluid losses, and so they might do better. So supportive care is in addition to the antibiotics. What about zinc? Zinc is wonderful for kids with diarrhea. Is zinc useful for kids with pneumonia? No. Good studies would say that there's no real effect of zinc for the treatment of acute pneumonia in resource-limited countries where there's some zinc deficiency. Zinc's not bad, but it's not a necessary or helpful adjunct for the treatment of pneumonia. So a few years ago, people in Uganda looked at kids who died of pneumonia trying to figure out why do they die. Most died after being sick for a long time and after being in the hospital for a while even suggesting that initial care and even hospital care was suboptimal. Pneumonia is treatable. The reminder to us is make sure we're treating well. Not every febrile child has malaria or just malaria. Count the respiratory rate. Think about pneumonia. We shouldn't delay seeking care, but once the child gets to us for care, we should make sure we're giving good, appropriate treatment. Lives can be saved from pneumonia if we're getting kids to treatment and giving them high-quality treatment, which is based on counting a respiratory rate and having antibiotics available. So it gets back to this. After all this talking for the last half hour, count the respiratory rate. If they're tachypnic with their acute fever and cough, think about giving antibiotics. And if they're really sick with it, hospitalize them, give supportive care oxygen if they need it. Yes. You don't like that idea. What do you do? So. Are you a pediatrician? I am. Yeah, you, you do good work. You work here at Cozair? When I'm not in Togo. When you're not in Togo? Very good. So let's, let's follow up what she just asked for a few minutes. What about this common situation of a child that comes in with some congestion, some cough, some noisy breathing, some fever, but maybe not super high fever, and when you examine the child, yeah, there's tachypnea, there are retractions, but there are also coarse breath sounds with a lot of scattered wheezing. She knows that that's bronchiolitis. Are we going to give every child with bronchiolitis antibiotics just because they broke that limit there? That's a tough question. So does bronchiolitis happen in Africa, or is it just a wintertime American thing? There was a study in Kalifi, Kenya, that says, yeah, bronchiolitis happens. There's lots of it. Kids can die of it. Bronchiolitis matters. Does it happen in Asia? Yeah, studies in Thailand showed that lots of the kids that were sick with lower respiratory tract infection and fever and tachypnea had influenza or RSV. Seasonal in other countries near the tropics as well as it is here. So bronchiolitis does matter around the world, and I presume you see bronchiolitis in Togo as well. So bronchiolitis matters. Briefly, what causes bronchiolitis? I'm glad she asked this question. We had a few slides about this. Uh, what causes bronchiolitis? Usually it's RSV, respiratory syncytial virus. Almost every child gets infected with respiratory syncytial virus in the first two years of life. There are other viruses that can do it as well. Popular this season in the United States is a particular enterovirus, D68, that seemed to cause a wintertime kind of bronchiolitis pattern um, during the summertime, making non-asthmatic kids wheeze and respond to albuterol. That was kind of goofy. And then that little epidemic seemed to pass um, anyway. So different viruses can cause bronchiolitis. The story we gave is the typical bronchiolitis story. 
It's like a cold, but then the child gets sick with lower respiratory tract disease, with coarse breath sounds, wheeziness, um, tachypnea. Um, so what are we going to do for these kids? What treatments might be useful? She doesn't want, she doesn't want us to just jump at antibiotics for everybody. What treatments might, thank you for that too, uh, what treatments might actually help? Supportive care works. Remember the patient, like Hippocrates said. Uh, we'll give fluids. We don't want them getting dry. So if they're tachypnic, they might even need IV fluids if they can't drink it or tolerate it in their tummies. Uh, we'll need to make sure they're getting nutrition. Suction can help because young kids, especially with bronchiolitis, are all gooped up in their nose and throat. If we can clear their airway, ABCs, think about the airway, clear the airway with suction, that works. But deep suctioning that we in hospitals in this country like to do end up aggravating children more than it helps. So clearing the upper airway might help a bit. Oxygen is useful. Chest physical therapy, beating on the chest to loosen secretions, causes more distress than benefit. So studies would suggest chest physical therapy is unhelpful, non-beneficial, um, and actually is causing troubles for kids with bronchiolitis. Um, what about cough suppressants? Just say no. They don't do any good. They can be toxic, so don't give those. In this country, it used to be that people would give a lot of the different colored cough and cold medicines, depending on all the symptoms, billion-dollar industry. In other countries, it's potassium iodide or whatever other things you make locally to treat cough. They don't do any good. We don't need to do it. What about bronchodilators? Albuterol and salbutamol are the same thing, different generic names in different parts of the world. Various studies look at the, have looked at albuterol and bronchiolitis. Albuterol does not help kids who just have bronchiolitis. However, if a child has asthma, reactive airway disease, and also bronchiolitis, it might help. Good studies would say it doesn't help if it's bronchiolitis, but if you think they've had trouble in the past and maybe they have some asthma with it, you could do a therapeutic trial of albuterol, and then if that helps, you can treat their asthma while you're treating their concurrent bronchiolitis. Studies mostly in other countries, but around the world have looked at epinephrine, adrenaline, to help clear and open the airways in kids with bronchiolitis. doesn't help. Steroids have been looked at a bunch. Steroids help lots of things, but they don't help bronchiolitis. Um, there have been lots of studies, Cochrane reviews over the years. Um, steroids are not useful for kids with bronchiolitis. What about hypertonic saline? There have been a few studies of hypertonic saline, usually using 3% salt solution. Um, the logic being that it irritates the airway and helps kids cough, and it sucks fluid out by being hypertonic in the airways to help decongest and suck fluid out. Some studies have showed improvement in hospitalization duration. Some have showed that just after treatments, kids have less distress. Other studies, sometimes mixed with epinephrine in the same study, show it doesn't make any difference. And in the last two months, there were two studies published in the same Good American Pediatric Journal, one saying hypertonic saline works for bronchiolitis, the other saying hypertonic saline doesn't help for bronchiolitis, with a great editorial to say, does it help? We don't know. Um, so you can try hypertonic saline. If it seems to help, fine. We need more data. And really, we need to figure out which kids it helps so we can focus who gets it. Overall, it doesn't seem to do much. Um, so what does this tell us? Lots of people get lots of treatments for bronchiolitis that don't do any good. You notice I'm still avoiding her question about antibiotics. We'll get there. Uh, but what about other things? 
Antiviral drugs, bronchodilators, and steroids do not help, so we shouldn't use them. But as the New England Journal reported seven years ago, two-thirds of kids hospitalized for bronchiolitis get at least one of these non-useful things. We should do better. New England Journal said withholding therapy is much more difficult than giving it. We need to do what's right, even when what's right is to do nothing, to not give an antibiotic or a steroid or something else. So that was 2007. Last week, some new guidelines came out from the American Academy of Pediatrics about the management of bronchiolitis. I would summarize those lengthy guidelines by saying, just say no. If the child has bronchiolitis, no chest x-ray needed, you can make a clinical diagnosis. If the child has, or has bronchiolitis, no antibiotics needed, no albuterol needed, no chest physical therapy needed. And there are a bunch more details in those new guidelines. So finally, seven minutes later, back to her question, does that mean we're going to give antibiotics to every child with bronchiolitis just because they have tachypnea? Depends on who we are. She's a pediatrician between Louisville, Kentucky, and Togo. Um, what's she going to do? I would guess from her questions, I'm putting you on the spot and on a little bit of a pedestal, I would guess she's probably pretty good at looking at the child and thinking and saying, this is not a super high fever, and this is with a lot of upper airway congestion, and I hear scattered wheezing and coarse breath sounds. I think this is bronchiolitis, and I would tend to trust her. So if she is we, we probably don't need antibiotics. But if we are some of the less highly trained healthcare workers in rural settings who maybe don't have as much experience between the earpieces of the stethoscope, maybe we're going to say if they're febrile and coughing and tachypnic, give antibiotics, and maybe we would accept over-treating some kids with bronchiolitis so as not to miss many of those 1.2 million kids dying every year. So part of the answer to your antibiotic question is, yes, I agree completely. If it's just bronchiolitis, we don't need to give antibiotics. But we need to be pretty sure it's just bronchiolitis, realizing that some kids have two problems at the same time. Sometimes bronchiolitis gets super infected by bacteria, especially if it was really influenza at the beginning, bacteria are more likely to get on top of it. So just say no to antibiotics if it's just bronchiolitis. If we're not sure, we might accept that. So what should we remember about bronchiolitis treatment? Some things help, fluids, nutrition, and oxygen. Other treatments are not necessarily like cough suppressants, steroids, albuterol, unless they also have asthma. Antivirals don't help. And let's never forget prevention. Let's cut down on smoke exposure, whether it's from family fires or cigarettes. Let's remember to wash our hands. Um, and what's M IMCI? It sounds like some song about IMCI. Uh, what, uh, how many of you know what IMCI is? A, you have no clue. B, it's something for other people. C, it's an active part of your daily practice. How many say A? You're clueless. Welcome to cluelessness. We live there most of our lives. How many say you know what it is, but it's not for you? And how many say you do IMCI every day? Thank you very much for doing IMCI every day, sir. Um, IMCI is the Integrated Management of Childhood Illnesses. It's a system propagated through World Health Organization connections around the world. It provides a whole person, holistic approach for child health development and illness. 
At the core of IMCI is caring for acute respiratory infections, diarrhea and dehydration, measles, malaria, and malnutrition. The IMCI system links home to clinic to hospital, and it's been adapted for use in over 110 countries, um, so it's very useful when adapted to that country. IMCI is a system so everybody can follow the same pattern, which means we'll suggest let's tell people what to do. And IMCI says, count the respiratory rate. Look at the whole child, think about everything, and if the child's coughing and has a fever, count the respiratory rate. If there's tachypnea, call it pneumonia and give antibiotics, and don't forget about malaria while you're at it and all those other things. That's the literal IMCI, but there have been a lot of studies to think about it for just what she's saying. study in 2008 from India says if you do that, you're going to underdiagnose bronchiolitis and waste a lot of antibiotics. And if you do that, you're going to overdiagnose pneumonia by calling lots of things pneumonia that were really not pneumonia. They were just viral or bronchiolitis or something. More recently, a paper that's not actually published except online so far, people have affirmed her. I don't think your name was in the paper. Maybe you wrote it. Uh, but there is a recent study which actually says auscultation helps. I still believe in the watch is the right answer, even though most of you said the stethoscope helped. Um, but if you hear a lot of wheezing, don't get stuck in your pneumonia idea. Maybe it is asthma with a cold. In the younger child, maybe it is bronchiolitis. So there is value in the stethoscope. It's useful to use your stethoscope and to think about bronchiolitis. But somehow we have to integrate all this. We don't want to miss pneumonia, so we want to make sure we count the respiratory rate and think about antibiotics. On the other hand, when we have the resources to good minds between the stethoscope earpieces, we should think about not necessarily giving antibiotics when it just seems like bronchiolitis. Does that answer the question? I think it means I agree with you completely. But if we're going to have a whole health system, we'll probably still err on the side of giving more antibiotics when they didn't need them. So what do we do if a kid with bad pneumonia or bronchiolitis can't eat? I would say we need to give fluids first. If they're severely malnourished, we're going to push the nutrition. If they're not severely malnourished, we have a couple of days before they get calories, so we might be able to get along okay. I like nasogastric tubes for kids that aren't eating, but whether it's trying to eat by mouth when you're breathing 80 times a minute and you might inhale it, that's risky. If you overfill the stomach then you're going to be pushing up on the diaphragm and hindering respiration a little bit. So there are challenges even with tube feeding. But admitting there are challenges, I say as long as we're getting good fluids into the child for a day or two, we're probably okay, unless it's severe acute malnutrition. If the child's malnourished with a Z-score of less than negative 3 by bad malnutrition guidelines, we're going to be doing other things in addition anyway to take care of the nutrition. Anyway, for the first day or two, fluids most, if they're really sick for longer than that, they shouldn't be. They should be getting better. But after that couple days, they can usually tolerate an NG tube and small frequent feedings to get good nutrition going, focusing on the fluids, but giving them whatever calories they need. Um, so I would not necessarily go hypocaloric. I just want to make sure they're not going to gag and vomit and aspirate when they're really sick.
Good thoughts. Thank you. Uh, we should keep our hands clean, too, so we don't spread it between kids. So to summarize, 1.2 million kids are dying, 3,200 kids a day. This is bad. We want to do something. We'll need to immunize. We'll need to clean up the air where there's pollution and smoke around kids. We need to clean our hands between patients we see. Hard to do when you've got three patients in the same bed, but sharing germs isn't always good. And we need to give good care, thinking about the diagnosis, thinking about appropriate antibiotics. So back to where we started, the 10-month-old has a couple days of fever and cough. What do we do? Count the respiratory rate. And think about using your stethoscope and doing a malaria smear and everything else that's relevant in your setting. Think about diabetes. Maybe get the whole story that you need to take care of them. What's going to help? Antibiotics, if they're tachypnic, unless you're pretty sure it's just bronchiolitis or asthma. Antimalarial, if the test is positive, and then whether it's bronchiolitis or not, we'll focus on treating the whole child with supportive care. I am happy to interact more about all this at any time, and I think we have about five minutes for comments and discussion and questions. What questions or comments or disagreements or additions? Getting pneumococcus or pneumococcal vaccine? <laughs> I think we're doing really well at getting pneumococcus to the world. How close are we to getting pneumococcal vaccine to the rest of the world? We're getting closer, but I don't know. Does anybody know? I'm guessing we're probably still years off before we're commonly giving pneumococcal vaccine. It's still expensive. It takes multiple doses. Um, I would guess we're several years off. But maybe the way to do it is to go in smaller areas where you can have an infusion of capital money to do it, like Togo, and show it works there, and then maybe it'll spread some. It's tough when there are limited health care dollars to say how much are we going to spend on vaccines. There's progress. We don't see much H. flu meningitis around the world as like we used to. Uh, we need to get rid of pneumococcus. I know I'm still guessing it's a few years off before people can afford it in other places. She's a nurse, so she's smarter than the rest of us. She knows how to take care of kids. So on the RSV, if it's bronchiolitis and you're thinking that that way, does that normally resolve in a short period of time? Ah, good so question. If the duration of the symptoms resolves, then you can pretty much be, be assured that you had the right diagnosis. And if it carries on, then you would say it's pneumonia. Um, good thought, but doesn't always work. So the thought is, since RSV usually gets better without treatment, you can say, see, we're getting better, we were right, it's not pneumonia, we don't need anything. The trouble is, especially in young kids, less than six months of age, they can stay pretty sick for a while. They get sick over a couple, three days, they stay sick for a while and get better slowly. So some will be needing oxygen even for a week. Um, so they're not going to get better from their virus that, that quickly when they're young. So you can't always use the natural course of the illness to say, see, I was right, it wasn't something more severe. So it would be nice, but you're really going to use the wheezing, coarse breath sounds with a lot of upper stuff and without the super high fever to think bronchiolitis. So your logic is right, but the timing makes it tough. One more final question or comment? Thank you all. Have a great week here.